morning, everybody. Don't forget about the business meeting today. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we are actually going to talk to you uh, at the beginning about something that we, I don't think we've maybe spoken clearly about before. So I'm going to apologize at the beginning of the business meeting, and then you're going to see what I'm talking about, but you got to come to find out. That's my prelude. Uh, okay, I'm going to start. Uh, welcome to Element if you're new. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And on the inside, you're going to get a little write-up and recap what we talk about today, some questions that you can ask your friends, your family, gospel communities, kids, uh, whatever, to kind of reflect on what we talk about. On the back, you get the verses we're going through and then a place for notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message except for this. So don't stand up yet. I'm going to do something right now that I never do, and it's very self-centered. And if you ask me to do this for you, I will say no. But I have a mic, so I'm going to do it. Uh, when we start this, go through this message, I'm going to ask you for a lot of grace because I have not gotten a whole lot of sleep in the last five days. Uh, my, my wife and I have been looking at puppies. <laughs> Puppy. <clears throat> and we ended up with two. So th there is a lady, she, there was a, a German shepherd that was going to be put to sleep at a, at a place down in um, Santa Barbara. So she goes and she adopts this dog. When she adopts this dog, about two weeks later, she goes, oh no, it has worms. Not worms, tails. Tails were coming out and it gave birth to two puppies. Now the apartment that this lady is in is probably about from me to that wall to about this big. And so she's got this dog, two puppies, a cat, and it was a lot. And we were looking, and this thing came up. So my wife and I went down and looked at this, at this puppy, and we drive home. My wife says, well, we should adopt the one and foster the other because it's too much for that poor lady's apartment. And me, I love my wife. I say yes. Two, two puppies, two puppies is a lot. I wanted to be great. Two is a lot. So if you are someone who has been looking for a puppy, here is a picture of her. How could you resist? Rudy Van Solange. So... Uh, she's super smart, super sweet, um, you know, as a puppy, we open the back door, runs out, pees in the backyard really quick, although, because it's a puppy, they still get excited, so they still, anyway, if you seriously have someone who are interested in it, and you're not a weirdo, we would love to talk to you about this puppy. If you ask me to do this for you, I will say no. My name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors at Element, why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? <laughs> That says Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, and it says, For am I now seeking the approval of man? Obviously not. Or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who become servants of you first, who live and worship and honor you by the things that we say and the things that we do, that our hearts be fully committed to you and we would understand what that looks like 
in the things that we say and do. Amen. Have a seat. So as I said, give me a little bit of grace today because I don't have a lot of sleep and I'm going to look at my notes a lot. I'm just trying to stay focused and get you through this. Let's see how this goes. We are in the New Testament book of Galatians. This is week three. If you have an element Bible that's on page 631, you can open there. Galatians is written to a group of young churches that the Apostle Paul planted in the area that was then Greece. Today it's modern day Turkey. If you know anything about Paul, he will center all of his teaching and preaching on what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. Jesus comes to live the life that we all should have lived in relationship with God, glorifying him, but none of us did that. We all run away from God and want to be our own gods. And so Jesus comes, lives that life, died the death that we deserve to die in our place. He dies on a cross, taking our sins upon himself. Then he rises from the grave at the first fruits of new life. And the gospel is the announcement of that good news of what Jesus did. Jesus gives righteousness to us as a gift. It is not based upon the works that we do. He restores us to new life when we trust in his provision, and he brings us back to who we were always meant to be, God's children in this world, restored to relationship with him. Again, not based on our works, not based on our pedigree. It's not based upon how religious or good we are or how many puppies you can adopt. It's upon his grace. And the churches in Galatia, in this area, they believed that message, the restoring grace of Jesus. And then Paul goes off to plant some more churches. And as soon as Paul leaves, some other teachers start to show up. And they tell these people who believed they were saved by grace alone that Paul didn't know the whole story. That Paul wasn't telling them everything they needed to know, all that God required. And they were saying that you also needed to follow the Torah, the law that Moses gave out to be considered part of God's family. And that Jesus' death didn't really fulfill the law. What it made it is that you can actually now just try harder. Aren't you excited about that? There are people today called Torah Christians who actually believe this. They take Jesus as the Messiah, and they take the law, and they mush it together. They must have never read the book of Galatians, because that is written exactly to counteract that. Some of these people would go so far as to say that Paul was telling the Galatian people that what they wanted to hear. Oh, it's just easy grace. Why doesn't Paul make the... Men who are older get circumcised when they believe in Jesus. Oh, it's easy grace. Because we know any adult man, when they said, get circumcised to follow Jesus, you'd be like, let me rethink that. I don't know if I want to do that. And Paul says, well, you don't have to be circumcised. And they'd be like, that's cheap, easy grace. And this is why Paul last week gets fired up, Galatians 1, 8, and 9, and says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What's the gospel? You are saved by grace. Jesus did the work. You don't need to do the work. We trust in him and his provision. But that does, in the end, change our lives. Super strong words in the Greek. Now we're going to spend today talking about one verse that Paul says next. And don't worry, next week I'm going to finish the rest of chapter 1. So we're going to hit a lot of verses next week. If you're like, he's just doing one verse every week. What am I going to do? You're going to be fine. This is where Paul goes. Galatians 1 verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
The problem is a lot of people today will say that, and they are rude and angry and mean, and they do it around anything but the gospel. It's like, oh, this is just who I am. I'm rude. I'm mean. Paul was maybe a little bit rude to these false teachers because he was proclaiming the gospel. That's why he says what he does here. It doesn't give us license to be rude to everybody in the world who doesn't agree with us. Most likely for these people, Paul's voice could have even been new. Because this, you know, you don't have radio, you don't have television, so who is this Paul? So these false teachers here, oh, who's this guy coming around? Kind of like today, maybe somebody new comes on the scene. And it's like a, they write these books, and they're on all the interview circuits. It's like, who is that person? What do they actually really believe? Like, we would be leery of a brand-new voice. For these people, Paul might have been a brand-new voice where they were. But you see that Paul's words were not heretical because what he does is he takes the entire Old Testament and brings it together with Jesus as the Messiah. All the promises that God had made all throughout the millennia find their culmination in the person of Jesus. And this is what those other teachers, the false ones, did not do. Rather than going with the flow of what every other religious person wanted to say and teach, Paul centers his teaching on Christ and him crucified as the fulfillment of what God was doing in the world to save people. Paul has reiterated that his calling to talk about this comes from Jesus himself as an apostle. And Paul kind of really says, I'm an apostle, are they? Are they apostles? And the troublemakers in Galatia have been trying to put Paul down by saying, no, Paul's not really an apostle. The message he gives, he's only junior varsity. He didn't understand the message of the varsity apostles, and so he needs to go back and learn what the real message actually looks like. Paul was like one of those people who were too afraid when they showed up to really tell you what the truth was. Like maybe that substitute teacher in high school that comes in and they look like they just want to go hide in the corner because they're afraid of all of you. Well, that must have been Paul, and that's why he said you didn't need to follow the law or get circumcised. He's saying this so it makes it easier for non-Jews to swallow. And so Paul will say, I was no one's disciple except for Christ and his alone. That's where I learned the fullness of the message of who God is, all of God's promises coming to fruition in Christ. Paul says, I'm independent of all these influences, but not independent of Christ. Paul is pressing home a point to these churches that heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus from Paul's lips. I am a follower of Jesus. Based upon what they have said, are they actually followers of Jesus? Are you dependent on all these other people, or are you independent and solely rest upon what Christ said? And Paul's walking a fine line here. Because what he's saying is in his announcement of the gospel, it creates a single family composed of Jews and Gentiles, but we should be loyal to Jesus above everything, including, Paul says, me, myself. You're loyal to Christ above everything, including me. He goes, be loyal to my teaching, you, but if push comes to shove, you must choose the gospel even over me. And some of the issues in Galatia, it looks like it's even a turf war. Who had ultimate control? Who had ultimate authority? And these guys were saying, we do. What Paul said is, it's not me. It's not them. Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority. That's where Paul points. The sad thing is, it still happens today. And it's really good for us to see when we listen to different voices in our world, who's actually talking about what the true gospel actually is. N.T. Wright says this, if Paul is to be our guide, the first rule seems to be, tell the story Clearly, 
right? That's what Paul does. He doesn't worry about what men think. He's trying to say what God wants him to say. Tell the story clearly. Don't fudge the background out of which any problem has come. Learn to prize both the independence which grows out of a fresh vision of Jesus and the convergence between different preachings of the gospel. Not different gospel messages, but how the gospel is spoken into different cultural contexts. But keep your eye on the main issue, which must always be God's glory. And that's where Paul is always pushing, God's glory. And I think what Paul has to deal with is something we should all be aware of. Whose approval really matters in the end? Whose approval matters? We live in a culture today, right? Cancel culture. You say you do something wrong, you're done, you're canceled. And I think this is why Paul is not seeking to be accepted by those people who came into Galatia. He simply wanted to speak the truth. Now, today, what we want to do when someone disagrees with us is we want to destroy them, right? We want them to just go away. I canceled you. You are done. Push them out of our lives like they're writers of reality TV show, you know, just worthless. What are you even doing with that job? They're not worrying, you know, not worrying about people who don't accept us doesn't mean we want them to go away. What we really, in the end, should want to do is display the truth to people in a way they can understand it. So instead of saying, God, remove these people from my life, we should start to ask God, Show me how to display the truth in a way that they will actually hear it and understand it. And so what Paul does in the first part of Galatians, it goes so much into our societal norms that we hold today. Uh, he does this, talks about truth in two ways. He talks about truth, what's called objectively and subjectively. And this is what we'll talk about today. Uh, the objective truth is something that is true no matter what. Gravity, right? Uh, I jump off a building, gravity is going to pull me down. I don't believe in gravity. <laughs> right? you, you go to the ground. That's what. Now, subjective truth is when you take what is objectively true and it becomes real to your life. It, it's kind of like this. Uh, our, our faith is in Jesus alone. Our salvation is in Jesus alone. That's objective truth, what Jesus did. But when we have faith in Jesus alone, that becomes subjective to us. And I'll explain more what that means. But there's a lot of writers and bloggers and even preachers today who ascribe what they say is subjective over objective. And we can't do that. And again, I'll explain what that means. But one writer says this, I have learned to let powerful biblical images, stories, and poems wash over me. Doctrine and dogma are effectively submerged, meaning they take the experience of what they have read. And how does this feel to me? What does this mean to me as I read it? Rather than taking the objective, what they do is they take how they feel about it and they submerge what the truth of the passage might actually say. Now, you have to understand in Christianity, we are to value both, objective and subjective. These things come together, but objective is always first what the truth is. And this is what rubs people the wrong way in our culture. Jesus will say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I bring the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus just doesn't bring the word. He is the word. Jesus just doesn't talk about God. He is God in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three, Paul says that the gospel doesn't just bring power into our lives. He says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God comes into our lives. It's both objective because it's true, and it's subjective because it changes us. And rather than just going with what feels good, Paul says, I'm going to speak the objective truth because the objective truth in the end is what will change us. And so Paul speaks of the gospel and he speaks about it in a way that is offensive to some people. And that's okay when we're speaking of the truth. And as followers of Jesus, we must see the truth, speak the truth, and live in the truth. So I'm going to talk about these two truths. First one, objective truth. Objective truth can be a hard 
truth. It really can. Paul says, Galatians 1.8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Again, very hard thing for a culture to swallow today. Paul is saying, though, our faith is based upon the hard edge of divine revelation, what God has done in the world. It's not based upon what we feel, and it's not based upon what we want. Our faith is not based upon any human source, and that's really the whole argument that Paul makes in the entirety of Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, it's not about me. It's not based on me. If you jump down to verse 16 in chapter 1, Paul will say, God reveals his son to me so I would understand and preach the gospel to everyone, including the Gentiles, including those false teachers. Paul says this, I got the gospel from God. I came to preach it, Galatians 1.15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. That's an important line because that word anyone, it literally translates as flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. Paul is making a distinction between the apostle who brought the message versus the divine revelation itself. Now, how do we know that? Well, this wording is only used in one other place in the Bible. It's used when Jesus in Matthew 16 talks to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, 16, Peter looks at Jesus and he says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response is this, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that just means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood, same word, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus says that, he's talking about Peter's divine revelation. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church, that's what he's talking about. Some people take that and they say, no, they're talking about Peter. Peter's the rock that Jesus is going to build his church on. Jesus is not building his church on people. That is not what's happening here. You go six verses later, Jesus is like, I'm going to give up my life. Peter says, no, you're not. Matthew 16, 23, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's not a good nickname, by the way, if you're looking for one. The same guy where Jesus just says, you're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. He now says, get behind me, Satan. What it means is that the proclamation of where Jesus builds his church is not on Peter. It's on what Peter said. The revelation, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what the church is built on, that objective truth. Now, Paul gets this because Paul says, I'm an apostle. But your faith is not based upon me as an apostle, but on what I as an apostle has brought to you, that which is not flesh and blood, but what Jesus, the risen Christ, gave me from his lips, the gospel, the good news, that God came to rescue us in himself, in Christ. Now, there are a lot of people who run around today claiming to be apostles and want you to put your faith in them. And this is why I keep telling you, Paul never said Hey, I'm a cult leader. Follow me. How do we know that? Because he never said, look at me. He always says, look to Christ. This is who Jesus is. You follow who he is. There are other churches today that have leaders, and they say whatever the leaders say, well, that trumps scripture. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody, uh, but the Mormon church today actually has four standard works. They have the King James Version of the Bible. They have a thing called the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants, and then whatever the current leaders of the Mormon church say. The Bible is the least in authority of all of those. Everything else trumps it. 
and the, today the modern church leaders and the Mormon church can issue things that are from the mouth of God and are considered more than scripture. Now, give me an example of this. Up until 1986, the Mormon church said that if you were black, you cannot be part of the priesthood. It was very racist. Mormonism had a lot of its beginnings in racism. And so after a lot of pushback today, the Mormon church then changes in 1986 and says, oh, no, 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 now black people can be part of the priesthood. See, instead of objective truth, you have this changing revelation. And there's now things pushing against them today while they're changing even some other doctrines that they have. It changes because it's not based upon something solid. And this is why Paul fights so strongly. Don't just trust in me. Don't just trust in those false teachers. You trust in the gospel as it has been revealed. Jesus is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the truth. Paul will say, even if you have a mystical experience, if an angel from heaven floats down right in front of you and it changes the gospel, you get rid of it. You don't listen to what they say. You listen to the gospel as it has been revealed. You reject the false gospel. Our faith is not based upon anything human or subjective. It's based on something hard and objective, divine revelation. The New Testament, which is the apostolic revelation, the Old Testament, which was accepted by Jesus himself. It's divine revelation, not human authority structures from the outside, not our feelings, not our experience. Now, why is that so important? Because our culture today centers itself around human experience and feeling. I was reading this person talk about a presidential campaign before I was born, a guy named Barry Goldwater. Apparently, he's running for president. And he had the slogan for president, and it said this, in your heart, you know he's right. Oh, let's, in my heart, I, that's what our culture, oh, in my heart, oh, okay, you decide your authority based upon your feelings. Didn't get very far. The Democrats actually had a response to that, and their response was, in your gut, you know he's nuts. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. So during, during this time, about that time, uh, there's a guy named Woody Allen. Some of you know who he is. If you don't, he's a filmmaker, writer, director. And about that time, Woody Allen is ha caught having an affair with his adoptive daughter. So people say, oh, that's ex exploitative. That's an abuse of power. His response is a response that people still say today. And this is the response. The heart wants what the heart wants. You ever heard that? Right there. That's where it comes from. Right there when he says that. That's his way of saying the only way you know what's right or wrong is what's in your heart, what you feel. Your heart tells you what it wants. And there's nothing that you can do about it. And today we have stories of kids killing other kids. And they will say, oh, I wanted to see what it felt like. It's what my heart wanted. If our heart is the way in which we make decisions about truth, how could Woody Allen say what he did was okay and yet look at one of these kids and what they did was wrong and say, oh, that's wrong? You can't. Why is one person's heart better than another person's heart in making decisions? It's not. When the basis for authority in society is our hearts, there's no way that anyone can ever know the truth objectively. And this is why, if you are a Christian, we do not say Christianity is true because I feel it. We don't say that. Paul says Christianity is based on the hard edge of divine revelation. And it doesn't matter at times what we feel about it. Paul didn't just get a vision. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He gets a message. He actually does go up and talk to the other apostles who confirm the message that Paul gets. That's going to be Galatians chapter 2. Hundreds of people saw the risen Jesus. There is no other religion that is based in historical evidence like Christianity. There's a hardness. There's an objectiveness to it that is true, and it goes beyond niceties. And that's why Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's why he says it. 
Too many people love the vague, but that is not Christianity. And that is why a lot of people do not like what we call historic Christianity and why a lot of people want to try to destroy it. Okay, so objective truth. You got it? Five of you. Okay, divine edge, hard truth. Now, what that does, though, is it moves into something called the subjective, where it actually changes how we live and how we feel because Christianity is meant to be experienced. And I'm going to make a, make a statement here, and, and I'm not trying, if, if you've ever said this, I'm not picking on you at all. But sometimes people will say, I know the gospel, but my life hasn't really been changed. I guess I really just need to apply it. That is a division the Bible really knows nothing about. Like if we say, I know the gospel, but my life hasn't changed, you probably don't really know the gospel. You probably really don't know what it truly means and the objective truth of it. Because subjectively, it does begin to change us. Now, sometimes it's very slow right? But sometimes it's also very fast. And we want, we want to see both of those things begin to happen. Sometimes people will look at the heinousness of their, heinousness of their lives and their past sin. And they're like, I, I just can't get over it. I can't forgive myself, all this stuff. I would also say to you that you don't understand the gospel. Because in the gospel, Jesus Christ takes our shame and our guilt upon himself. He gives us righteousness before who God is. Next week, I'll even look at Paul's story with you, and you'll see how it changed him to the point where other people who used to be afraid of him start to praise God because of the changes in Paul's life. Now, I read one person talking about Paul in Galatians 1 here, showing that while Paul was a unique case, there are essentially three things that come into our lives when we understand what the gospel really is. And I'm going to give you those three things. So the first one is this, that the Christian is an object of action. We are recipient of God's action in our lives, which then changes us to be objects of actions. We start to live for Christ. Paul starts to live for Christ. Now, in the versions in Galatians 1, Paul uses a lot of verbs centering around I in the beginning. I, I, I about his past. But when he, he steps in and God steps in the picture and changes things, this is what you read. Verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. One of the ways that we tell that we are experiencing the work of the gospel is we stop looking at ourselves so much. We stop worrying about throwing up our walls and trying to make ourselves look better to everybody else. What we want to do is just serve Jesus and all that we do. We want to see what God is doing. Christianity is not something we do. It is something that God is doing in us that changes us. When the gospel is working in our life, there is a sense that we are the object of God's action. C.S. Lewis did not believe in predestination or election, and yet it is so funny when he talks about how he came to know Christ. These are his words. I did not decide, I was decided upon. I'm like, <laughs> it, it's, it doesn't matter what your theology or philosophy is. God coming for us is something we realize when we understand the truth of what the gospel is. Paul says, but when God who set me apart from birth, that is not something that hits people when they first believe. It's something that as you start to go through your life, you start to realize all the nuances and things in your life before you came to know him, God was leading and guiding us to himself. You're able to look back on your life and simply be astonished at all that he has done to lead us to himself. Not in a vague way, like God's hovering over my life and he's going, will you recognize me one of these days? No, that God is moving everything to himself, which means that God has prepared all of us for some part of his larger story. We get to live in the story of God. God has prepared for us certain deeds that he will use to bring out about his glory, no matter what. Whether you're Pharaoh in the Old Testament, the false teachers Paul's talking about, or Paul himself. And then when we see that, we'll begin to see that everything everyone has ever done, right or wrong, is not a surprise to God. 
And God will use everything in our lives for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about it, talks about how God has been tempering us our entire lives. He's been honing and sharpening us in everything we've done, right or wrong, usually wrong because that comes so much easier, but right or wrong, he turns into something useful in his hands. Every single thing. When you understand the objective gospel subjectively in our lives, we then begin to understand that we become the object of God's action. Secondly is this, the more you're alone, the more real God becomes. And I'm going to explain what that means. But Paul write about, he becomes a Christian, you'll see this next week, and he goes off to a place called Arabia. And while there, he goes deeper in his relationship with God when he's alone. There's an old preacher named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He hated Victorianism and Victorian Christianity. He said everybody went to church, everybody was moral, but nobody knew God, his words, by themselves. Okay, by themselves. He said religion overshadowed them, but it did not penetrate them. And what he meant was that when people went to church, they hung around other believers. He thought that was great. He wasn't saying there's anything wrong with that. But when they ended up alone, they fell apart. I don't know if you've ever noticed anybody like that. Maybe a college kid goes up in church, I love Jesus. They go off to college and they just melt down. Maybe you have a friend who goes off on a business trip and their life just melts down. Like they go off and they have no need or desire for God. And there are a lot of people who have come to Element and they get really involved. They drink all of our Kool-Aid from redemption groups to gospel communities, totally involved, but then they move away. And they stop looking for a church. And they stop looking to find ways to worship God where they are because they don't think they really have a need for God. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we need to be careful that we are not overshadowed by Christianity instead of penetrated by it. And then what he means by that is you can get into an environment where you're around, around a lot of people and they're nice and they're kind and they love and they worship Jesus and maybe they even intellectually stimulate you. And you maybe, I want to aspire to be that. He says you can be a quote-unquote Christian because of the environment but not actually be penetrated by it. And these are people who take Christianity and make it a morality. Oh, are you Christian? Not meaning do you follow Christ, but do you do these certain set of things? And when you're alone, you feel alone. God isn't real to you. Again, Paul goes into the area of Arabia for years. We don't even know all he did when he was there for those three years. But one thing we do know is that God became more real to him in those places, not less. And this is a subjectiveness of understanding that objective truth of who God is. Christianity becomes more real the less that we have, because the less we have, the more we actually trust and put our lives in his hands. Third thing is this. There then becomes a change of nature. When you understand the objectiveness of the truth, it changes us. The change in Paul made people glorify God. In Galatians 4, Paul's going to give this analogy, you know, like years when we get there. No, in a couple months when we get there. Paul gives this analogy of two kids, Isaac and Ishmael. And he says Ishmael represents people who believe they're saved by their performance, by their works. And Isaac represents people who believe they are saved by the miraculous grace of God. And Paul will essentially make the argument that if you believe the only way you can be saved is by trying and achieving and by your own works, you will eventually look down on other people. You will disdain others because they're not living as moral a life as you are. Or you'll be someone who's just completely depressed because you can't live up to all these moral standards around you. But one of the marks of the gospel that's really touched our lives is we become more grace-filled towards others, especially others that we disagree with. Paul will talk about how he went from being a persecutor of others to someone who shared the good news with those he once considered undesirable, Gentiles. You know who that is? Most of us. Most of us. One of the ways we know that grace has touched our lives is we lovingly 
and humbly deal with others. And we show respect to them even when they disagree with us because we are living out what God has first done with us. We are people who totally disagreed with God. I don't need God for salvation. I can do it myself or I don't believe in God. And then he rescues and saves us. He takes us from places where we totally disagree with him, shows us grace, brings us into relationship with him. That's based upon the objective truth of who he is and the subjectiveness of what it's done in our lives. I love that one of the things that Paul does here, he just does not back off on the fact that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you will never thwart the purposes of God. You just won't. Everything we do in life will do nothing but conform and confirm the purposes of God. This is not fatalism. It's not, I guess it doesn't matter what I do. It is a warning to some and a comfort to others because Paul himself tried like crazy to destroy the church. And in the end, everything he did, God only used it to further his kingdom in the world. And Paul comes to a place where he objectively believed the truth of the gospel and then he begins to subjectively live out that truth. He realizes, I have been an object of God's action my entire life and God has brought me to himself. And he realizes the more, the more that he loses, the closer that he walks with who God is. And he has his heart changed for others, even those false teachers that are there. He objectively believed the truth of the gospel and lived out that truth. It was not one or the other. It was both in his life. Guys, I will tell you, based on what Paul says here, it doesn't matter what people think. It matters what God has done. That's what matters. And so for you, I want you to think about your life. And has God brought the reality of both of those together for you? Have you been someone who just runs after how it feels? Does it feel the right way? Do I feel it? Or have you started in the place of objective truth of who God is historically, what he has done in the world? And then that starts to inform how you feel and how you think. Because it has to. It has to. And I don't mean to just be totally intellectual with you this morning. I've given you these terms. It's like objective, subjective. I'm going to get them backwards. What I'm trying to do is help you to understand that Christianity is not just a, when we talk about faith, it's not just a bundle of feelings. Oh, I feel this way, and so I'm going to muster up enough faith so I believe this thing that may not be true. No, Christianity is true. And then how we live that out subjectively is based upon that truth. And so we as a people can live in great confidence because of what God has done historically in the world. At Element, every week, we come to a place of communion. And the place of communion is meant to be a reminder of the objective truth of what God has done to save us. And that is why you take a cracker and you break it. That is just like Christ's body that was broken for us. And you dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for you and me. So that we are people who are brought in because of what he has done. And now, because of that sacrifice when we remember what he has done, we get to then live that out in our lives in great freedom and hope because our God is good. Our God is good. How do we know? Objectively. Because what history tells us, that God has stepped into our place. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He has brought us to himself. All objective truth. And then we take that objective truth and live that out in our lives. And it does make a difference. I'm not saying we don't feel things. We do feel things. But the things we feel come on the back end of that objective truth. And we can live in such great joy and hope and grace because our great God has saved us. And if you need prayer this morning, there's going to be people right across the way in the, in the lounge. You can head out during the songs. You can go over there after the, 
after the whole service is over and talk to them. And if you want them to pray with you about understanding objective truth over the subjective of what a lot of people feel, they would love to talk to you about that. If you have questions about who Jesus is and the historicity of Christianity, they love to talk to you about that. And if they can't answer your questions, come and grab me, and I'll give you a puppy. And, <laughs> and I will talk to you about that. Because we want you to understand, again, our faith, Christianity, is a historical reality that God has stepped into time to save us because he is good. We are people who also give. That's why there's offering boxes on the side wall. We don't pass a plate. It's always a response to what God has done. And so if you want to give, you actually have to get up and give. Um, or you can give online. I give online. Uh, but we do that because God has been so generous with us, and so we become a generous people. And you'll learn about that today at the business meeting if you come back. Um, <laughs> and then take some of those questions and those sermon notes and talk to other people about them, like the objective truth of Christianity. Talk about the ways. Have you, have you thought about it like that, that there is an objective truth, and that's like what I base my my trust upon is that objective truth and that then changes how I begin to live because it is objectively true are we a people who live in response to what God has done because that's how we are to worship that's how we're to give that's how we're to love one another always in response to what God has first done we recognize his grace given to us and then we live out our lives in response to that objectively subjectively let's pray Father, this morning I ask that you would remind us of what it means to truly live in your grace, to trust you in all of our lives, that when there are places where we feel certain things that are drawing us away from you, you would remind us of the objective truth of what you have done to bring us back to yourself. That as much as we want to get sidetracked by our lives and the things happening within them, there is still an objective truth that stands over all. And that is that you came to save us. You stepped into time where we are in order to do a work to bring us back to yourself. And our works that we do today do not save us. They are only a response to what you have first done. So teach us to live our lives subjectively by looking at the objective truth of what you have done. Because you are our great God. And our lives and your church and our salvation is built on the unchanging truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we, as a people, believe and live in that truth. I ask that you would strengthen our hearts in the places where we want to trust our feelings more than we trust you. And by trusting you, we would live out in this great joy and hope of our salvation. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen. As we drop the curtains, take a moment and, and think about maybe where you have taken and placed your feelings above the objective truth of the gospel.
Again, not that feelings are bad. But our feelings always seem to react to some stimuli around us, right? You go, to a, you go to a scary movie, if you go to scary movies, and, and you get afraid. You go to watch Lilo and Stitch, and you cry at the end because he just wants a family, like this puppy I have. Our feelings are very easily manipulated. And this is why we look at objective truth first, what God has done. And let that then inform our feelings. So right now, as we go through these couple songs, take a moment and just think, God, where have I let my feelings overtake trusting your truth? And where do I need to come back to trust what you have said over everything, especially the things that our culture says today? And then allow him to strengthen you in that objective truth. And then sing a couple songs, take communion, head out into the world hopefully with that greater and deeper understanding that our salvation is not based upon us. It's based upon what he has done, and that is objective truth. And then we subjectively live in that truth.